Well, you know, I think when most people uh, talk about trees growing, right, they tend to talk about them growing up and growing out, right? When we think about trees, I think we tend to think about how tall trees are and how big around they get. Everybody likes to uh, count the rings on a big old tree when it cut down or falls down because those are the parts of the tree that we can see. And unless you're an arborist or, or someone else who works with trees for a living, you probably don't think too much about the part of the tree that you cannot see, right? The part that grows down under the ground, of course, the roots. And yet, yet when it comes to trees, what you see above the ground is determined by what you cannot see below the ground because the roots are what feed the rest of the tree. The roots take up the air, the water, all of the nutrients that the tree needs to grow and be healthy, and they supply all of that to the rest of the tree. In fact, do you know that the roots of a tree can occupy an area underground two to four times the diameter of the crown of the tree? So uh, there's a whole lot going on there under the surface to keep that tree healthy and growing and producing fruit and also strong and stable and anchored, right, so that when storms come and heavy winds blow and beat against that tree, it can stand tall and strong without being uprooted or knocked down. And of course, that's a great metaphor for the life of every follower of Jesus Christ. When, when people think about us and how we live our lives, they tend to think about the parts of our lives they can see how we act and what we do when we're around them or around other people and yet what determines the health of those parts of our lives that are seen by others, our behavior and the spiritual fruit that the Apostle Paul describes in Galatians 5 that we produce in our lives when we're spiritually healthy, that health is determined by the part of our lives that others do not see. The roots that we put down in Christ that feed the rest of our lives, that supply us with everything we need to keep growing and producing good spiritual fruit, to keep us strong and anchored when the storms of life come so that our faith and our resolve are not uprooted when it matters the most. In fact, uh, when your roots go down deep enough and wide enough in Christ, the truth is there's nothing in this world that can stop you from continuing to grow in Him, which means more spiritual fruit in your life, more love, more joy, more peace, right? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the things that the Apostle Paul describes as spiritual fruit in Galatians 5:22 and 23 that we all long for in our lives, that we all need more of in our lives. And as Paul continues in verse 23, notice what he says about that fruit of the Spirit. He says, against such things, there is no law. Right? In other words, when you're spiritually healthy, there's nothing in this world that can stop you from producing that good fruit in your life. And again, the key to that kind of health that everyone can clearly see in your life is by first being healthy in the areas of your life that people cannot see. It's the roots we put down in Christ that feed us and make us healthy. The problem uh, for a lot of Christians is the fact that just as other people tend to focus on the parts of our lives they can see, we also tend to give more attention to the visible parts of our lives than we do to the hidden parts of our lives. We, we dress up the outside of the tree, we make it look nice, 
but often the roots are shallow and weak and starving for the spiritual nutrition they need in order to keep us growing and to make the rest of our lives stronger and healthier, which is a big part of the reason that so many believers get knocked down so easily when storms in life come, because their spiritual roots are shallow, weak, and starved. Because they spend most of their time feeding what they can see, the natural man on the outside, instead of feeding what they cannot see, the spiritual man within. Okay? A lot of people think of their roots as their past. So they allow their past to define them. They allow their past to anchor them. They try to be fed from what happened in their past to feed into the rest of their lives. But your past is long gone. Okay, Your roots are actually very much a part of your present because they continue to grow just like the rest of you. And so it is vital to your overall growth and strength and health that you continue to feed those roots. Right? When a, when a gardener uh, or a tree care professional cares for a tree, they prune what is above the ground and feed what is under the ground. Right? They don't put fertilizer or water on the fruit or the leaves or the bark. Right? And they certainly don't cut back the roots. No, they put the fertilizer and water on the roots. They feed the roots, the part that cannot be seen. And they cut back the parts that can be seen. Our natural tendency is to do just the opposite. Right? We want to feed the natural man and then starve or cut back on nourishing the spiritual man. But listen, if you want to be able to withstand the onslaught of pressure and stress that may be weighing on your life today, if you want to be able to weather the storm in your life right now without being knocked down, if you want to be able to provide for and lead those around you even when conditions aren't in the best of shape in your life, if you want your faith to grow stronger even when life gets harder, right, then you need to feed your spirit. The part of you that no one sees. The roots of your life that reach into God because that is the part of you that connects with God. Your spirit is the part of you that's in relationship with God. But if all you do is feed the natural man, your body and your natural desires for this world, then your spirit withers because your relationship with Jesus Christ withers. You see, just like a tree... We need to feed our roots. And just like you can look at any tree and tell if the roots are healthy or not by the fruit it produces or does not produce, you can tell if your own life in Christ is healthy by the fruit it produces or the lack of it. So simply ask yourself, what can I point to right now in my life that is producing the spiritual fruit that Paul talks about in my own life and in the lives of others? Right? Who is being spiritually nourished right now by what is coming out of my life right now? Because honestly, if you cannot point to anything, if you cannot identify spiritual fruit in your life that is feeding you or those around you, then your roots may be starving and weak and shallow. And that will show up, by the way, in your life soon enough if it hasn't already. Trust me, uh, if you want to be strong in Christ, then you have to prune the outside and feed the inside. Because everyone comes under spiritual attack in their lives from time to time. The difference between those who stand strong through it and those who wither and fall apart is the depth and strength and health of their spiritual roots in Christ. 
As you prune the outside, that is to deny yourself as Jesus taught and feed the inside being filled with the word of God and the spirit of God. The first psalm says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is a description of someone who willingly denies themselves, who prunes the outside by denying the desires of their own flesh. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That is a description of someone who is feeding their roots, their spiritual roots. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, okay? If your life is in turmoil right now, and you feel like you're beginning to wither because of it, it might be time to begin to prune the outside of your life and instead begin feeding the inside of your life. Mark my words. Mark my words. Once you are firmly rooted in Christ, there is absolutely nothing that this world or anyone in it can throw at you that will keep you from growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Even when you're in the middle of the greatest storms of your life, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate to Epaphras, this local church pastor from Colossae, and the church members there in Paul's letter to the Colossians, which we're continuing to work through today, as Paul is addressing a tremendous upheaval from within the church caused by some false teachers who are leading people away from their faith in Christ. And so Paul says to these believers in Colossae, if you're going to be able to withstand the storm that you're in, then you're going to have to sink your roots deep into Christ and once you do, there's nothing that will be able to stop you or keep you from prospering spiritually in everything that you do. So let's pick up the story then, right where we left off last week at Colossians chapter 2. And we'll begin by reading verses 6 and 7 as Paul instructs these Christians about how to proceed in the midst of the greatest storm of their lives. All right, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So just to quickly review in uh, most of chapter one, which we worked through two weeks ago, Paul, before addressing the specific problems the Colossian Christians were facing, which were false teachers in the church leading the believers there away from the faith, he simply takes the time to first remind them of the hope that they have in Christ Jesus. No matter what's going on in their lives, no matter how difficult circumstances may be, there is always, 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 there is always hope available to us in Christ. And then in the last part of chapter 1, the first part of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, Paul talks about what that hope of Christ should look like in their daily lives as they live out the gospel. So up to this point, Paul is simply laying a foundation for them to build upon just before he addresses the specific issues that are threatening the survival of the church at Colossae, which brings us to verses 6 and 7, which is the pivot point for this entire letter as Paul summarizes everything he's taught up to this point in these two verses as a foundation for everything else that comes after it. So he says, therefore, 
meaning based on everything I've just said up to this point, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, you've already received the answer to your problem, which I'm happy to talk about, Paul says, but it's important for you to understand that you received the answer you're looking for already when you received the gospel of Christ because he is more than adequate to protect you from the empty traditions of men that are being pressed upon you now. It means all that's left for you to do then is to walk out what you've already been given in your life. And we just recently talked about that word walk when Paul says, so walk with him. It's the ancient Greek word peripateo, which is a reference to how we live out our daily lives. It was actually a Hebrew idiom that pictured a person's life as a road that one would travel along. And so Paul's saying when you walk in him, when you live out that gospel in your life each day, you're continually being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. See, this is how we feed the roots of our spiritual lives, by living out the gospel, walking it out in our lives, which involves denying ourselves, pruning the outward parts of our lives, while we nourish the inner parts of our walk with Christ, deepening our roots in Him. Which again, we talked about uh, in depth last week, the importance of gaining understanding and knowledge in Christ as we deepen our relationship with His Word and with His Spirit within us. So we won't go back through all of that today other than to say these two verses, 6 and 7, are Paul's way of saying, see, you already received the answer you need when you receive Christ. And so now let me just explain how this should play out in your life as you're confronted by these people who are trying to tear the church and your relationships apart. So let's keep reading then as Paul continues, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty uh, deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental uh, spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Amen. Yeah, that's right. So Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, listen, philosophy originated in Greece uh, back in the 6th century BC. It was a systematic and logical investigation of a given subject, which of course there's nothing inherently wrong with. But by the first century AD, the word philosophy had taken on a much broader meaning in the ancient world than it has even in our world today, which was typically uh, back then used to refer to practices or uh, points of view or tendencies, even magical practices, 
always within a religious context. And so we find the word being used by the first century uh, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, for instance, in describing different religious groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. The Essenes were the, uh, the ancient Jewish sect who wrote the Qumran, the, the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, But on the other side, the opposite end of the spectrum, we find Paul encountering two schools of philosophy in his travels, both the Epicureans and the Stoics in Acts 17, 18. These were the two main Hellenistic schools of philosophy after Aristotle. So the term was applied, applied very broadly, much more so then than it is today. A Bible scholar David Garland explains it this way. In Paul's world, ancient tradition ensured the excellence and sanctity of knowledge. If it was old, then it was considered good and not to be lightly dismissed. Today, we've convinced ourselves that the newest development is better. New, we assume, means improved. Consequently, we're inclined to be interested in the latest thing. In the Hellenistic period, the ancient age of a religion authenticated it and made it deserving of honor because it had stood the test of time. And I'll just tell you, there's some good and bad in that. Okay. Can you see what Paul was up against, though? Right. Christianity was still fairly new at the time, and yet this philosophy that was being promoted by false teachers in the church implemented many of the ancient practices of the Jews and other pagan religions, which is why Paul goes on to say what he does about Jesus Christ in the rest of this section of the letter that we just read, because, listen, Jesus came to give us a new life, not a new religion. Do you know that? Jesus came to give us a new life, not a new religion. And yet, on the contrary, this philosophy that Paul is referring to was nothing more than a new religion made up of a, a consortium of ancient religious practices. And so we'll come back to verse 8 in a moment because it's really the key to this entire section of Paul's teaching. But look, the whole reason Paul is able to say, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Or in other words, make certain you don't allow anyone to take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The whole reason Paul's able to say that to begin with is because of what follows in verse 9 and beyond. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. Who? In him who is the head of all rule and authority. You see, these false teachers from the mystery cults that had spread throughout the Lycus River Valley, which is where Colossae was located, they were alleging to have this higher form of ancient wisdom and knowledge about God than the gospel that Paul and Epaphras had been spreading, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these false teachers were claiming to have doctrinal authority over the teachings of the gospel, and they were convincing the Christians in the church to abandon their faith in Christ alone and in his gospel alone alone, and instead follow the authority of this new teaching, which again uh, mixed a lot of other pagan religious elements and even ceremonial elements from the Mosaic law in with the teachings of Christ, which is called syncretism, by the way. And so Paul says, look, don't forget, you have been filled with him who is the head, you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, there is no higher ruler or authority than Jesus Christ. And there is no higher wisdom or knowledge than the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, you have been rooted and built up in. Therefore, 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, the one you've been rooted and built up in. And I would say as important as that command by Paul is, the most important part, at least in terms of how we respond to the world and the pressure that it brings to bear on us and on the church then and today, the most important part in that context is those first three little words. See to it. Because look, Paul didn't say, hey guys, listen, I'm going to send out a prayer text to the whole church so that we can pray and hopefully no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's not what Paul said. He didn't say, hey guys, well, why don't you isolate yourselves from the culture around you so that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. It's not what he said, is it? He, he didn't say, hey guys, maybe if we could get enough people voted into office who think like us, we won't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, and look, if you know me, <laughs> you know I'm all about prayer. I'm all about trying to live righteously, and I'm all about being politically active. That's all great. But listen, remaining free from the captivity that naturally comes along with human philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition and the elemental spirits of this world is not dependent upon hiding ourselves away from the world and sweating it out while we pray and hope that somehow our culture becomes more like us so that we won't be taken captive by it. No, Paul says, you see to it. In other words, you make certain you do this because you already have everything that you need to be free from the captivity of human philosophy and deceit. Why? Because you're rooted in Christ. And look, when you're rooted in Christ, no one can take you captive. I don't know if you know this or not, but as a Christian, you're not a victim in this world. You're not a victim to a culture that is increasingly hostile toward the gospel. You're not a victim to secular policies and laws from our government. You're not a victim to God-hating groups of people who want to change the historical and foundational moorings of our society. No, you are not a victim to any of those things as real as they may be. That's just the world being the world. The fact is no one can take you captive by human philosophy and empty deceit against your will because you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Okay, when Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive, the word captive, it's the ancient Greek word, sulagagio. It means to lead away as spoil from war. In fact, in the first century AD, that word was, it was most commonly used to describe the plundering of cargo from a ship. It's the picture of someone forcefully taking away what is most precious to you after you've been defeated in a battle. But I'm telling you, God didn't put us here to be tossed around by the wind and waves of culture or by the storms of life in a fallen world uh, that sends them our way as often as possible so that we could try to hang on for dear life and then maybe, just maybe, if we don't let go of him, maybe we'll make it through to heaven one day. 
Nothing could be farther from the truth. Why? Because we've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, pruning the outside by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It, it, look, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you are not a victim of this world. And Christians are called a lot of things in God's word. Beloved brothers and sisters. Children of God. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. The body of Christ. The people of God. Friends of God. More than conquerors. We're called by many names in God's holy word, but one thing we are most certainly not called is victims. Amen. The great prophet Jeremiah, speaking an oracle of the Lord, wrote, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8, even in the year of drought. Listen, if you're in Christ today, then nourish the roots of your relationship with him. Focus on the parts of your life that cannot be seen by others. Honor him as you walk in him and you will not be taken by a captive by any religion or empty deceit or philosophy because you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's keep going. Verses 16 and 17, as Paul continues. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are but a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul continues with therefore, meaning because the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, Verse 9, and because we dwell in him who is the head of all rule and authority, verse 10, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all of the Jewish sacrifices, all of the Jewish hopes and observances pointed to a future reality that was fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, Christians are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. The, the future that the prophets longed for has now broken into the present. Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in these matters. Because the church was filling up with these self-appointed authorities who felt it was their duty to not only press their religious rules on these Christians, but to judge them according to how well they observed the rules. So Paul says, no, let no one pass judgment on you. Now listen, there is a form of judging uh, between believers that is right for us. Paul teaches it in 1 Corinthians 5. It has nothing to do 
with what Paul's talking about here. This is within the church family when we hold one another accountable according to his word. That's what he talks about in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, in this instance, these false teachers were trying to force Christians to follow Jewish ceremonial regulations as a means of salvation. And so Paul says, not only are these people not your judge, as that position can only be held by Jesus Christ, but you should not allow them to even try. Let no one, Paul says, pass judgment on you, which is the same thing as saying, see to it. In other words, you don't have to allow anyone to try and condemn you for not following their religion because you're already rooted in Christ. And when you're rooted in Christ, no one can judge you. Right? When Paul uses the word judgment in verse 16, it's the ancient Greek word krino. It means to condemn. So Paul was saying in spite of all their religious rules, and listen, I have nothing against observing feasts. We've done that many times. Uh, Jewish feast today, it's a beautiful thing. We can stand to learn so much from the Mosaic Covenant. Amen. But it's not required for our salvation today, right? And Paul was saying in spite of all these religious rules, they have absolutely no grounds on which to condemn you. So don't allow them to even try because everything that you need for salvation, you already have in Christ. Right? You see, he didn't cancel your record of debt by nailing it to a cross so that someone else could come along and rip it back down because you didn't follow their rules the way they wanted you to. No, every single thing that you will ever need to secure your eternal salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, in what he's done for you, not in anything that you could ever, 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 ever do for him in a thousand lifetimes. And yet every other religion in the world wants you to take your focus off of Christ and put it back on their rules. Their own philosophies about life and God and eternity. In fact, many of them will even reflect favorably on Jesus Christ. But he's never the center of their religion. You see, their rules are the center of their religion. Every one of them. What we can do to earn our salvation for God. I just went through this last week. We actually had someone show up at our church and wanted me and our staff to attend a meeting later in the week to become a part of their movement. They were handing out business cards to all of us. It's a false religion, okay? One that says they follow Christ, and yet they have their own holy scriptures, their own holy book, apart from the Bible. They have their own set of rules to follow, which come from a man, by the way, who claims he has special wisdom, special revelation from God. It's the oldest trick in the book. It's exactly what the Colossians were facing in the first century. And so I spent most of my evening Sunday night and part of the next day in an extended conversation with this person who was trying their level best to take me captive by their philosophies, to judge me based on what their religion and their holy book said that I must do to truly know the way to God. And if I didn't do it, I couldn't earn my way to him. But at the end of the day, you can't argue with the truth. So I'm telling you, I just kept quoting scripture and pointing this person back to Christ and I literally warned them multiple times just as Paul instructed the Colossians to do with every bit of Christ-like love I could muster to turn away from their deception, this false religion they were following before it was too late for them and instead turn back to Christ. And of course, it didn't end so well. 
It ended abruptly, and so I prayed, and I've been praying for that person. It's not how I wanted it to end, but listen, I wasn't about to allow them to take me captive or to judge my soul based on their false religion, no matter how persuasive their arguments may sound. Because my life is rooted in Christ. And any religion or philosophy or perspective or practice that is not rooted in Christ will always try to judge your life based on its own set of rules instead of his redeeming work on the cross. So listen, when, when people approach you with false teaching, sometimes they'll come to your church, sometimes they'll come to your front door. Sometimes they will come to you through friends and relatives. Listen, you can speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect, as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. But that doesn't mean you have to allow them to take you captive with their philosophies or be judged according to their religious rules. In fact, you have authority in Christ. You have authority in Christ over all of their false teaching. So speak the truth with gentleness and respect, yes, but don't give in to their teaching or allow them to influence your relationship, your rootedness in Christ. The Apostle John wrote, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. 2 John 7 through 11. Okay, listen. We're not simply talking about lost sinners here, people who have yet to hear the gospel or have yet to fully understand and accept it. You understand, those folks you should have in your home and in your life, showing them and sharing with them the love of Jesus Christ as often as you possibly can. John is referring to those people who have heard and know the truth and yet they bring false religion to your door, traveling teachers who are working against the gospel to take you captive so they can judge you according to their religious rules. It's how they hold power, how they hold sway over people. And so you defend the gospel with gentleness and respect, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. You warn them and teach them, as Paul says in Colossians 1.28. And yet if they continue to refuse to submit their lives to Christ, you turn them away. Jesus says it in Matthew 18.17. Paul says it in Titus 3.10 and 11. John says it in 2 John 10. Why? Not because we hate them, but because we love the truth and we defend the truth and we we protect his people from wolves in sheep's clothing who have come for no other reason than to destroy the truth, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, 15. Amen. All right, so the point Paul's making here is that when your life is rooted in Christ, you don't have to allow anyone to judge you apart from Christ, all right? Let's finish the part of, uh, this part of the letter for today then, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Asceticism is uh, uh, extreme self-denial or self-discipline, uh, okay? 
going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So in the final section of the chapter, Paul begins once again with those three very powerful little words, let no one, except this time he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, again, it's self-denial, uh, self, severe self-discipline that some religions practice, and uh, worship of angels, he says, going on in detail about visions, puffed up uh, without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Again, it's not that even asceticism in and of itself is wrong, right? We fast. That's a form of asceticism. We deny ourselves. We prune the outside. But that is not the means of our salvation. That's the difference, okay? So again, what was happening in the Colossian church was a syncretistic blend of pagan, Jewish, and Christian beliefs and practices all mixed together into a new religion and a new set of religious rules masquerading as true Christianity. Look, there are plenty of modern cults today, including the, the one that I was confronted with last week, that are just that, a blend of Judeo-Christian beliefs and pagan mysticism, false teaching and popular sentiment that appeals to our modern culture, all mixed up into a new religion, and yet they call themselves Christians. Again, David Garland wrote, the danger of Christianity becoming an amalgam of various beliefs and practices is always real as the intellectual and spiritual fashions of the day exert their influence. Likewise, uh, Scottish Bible scholar James Stewart, he's considered by many to be the greatest preacher of the 20th century, described what was happening in much of the modern church as a vague theism plus a liberal humanist picture of Jesus plus a dash of Judaic legalism, the whole being compounded with a certain culture consciousness, a considerable infusion of humanitarian benevolence, and perhaps even a secularizing of the kingdom of God. You see, obviously, there are tremendous parallels here between what was happening in the Colossian church then and what is happening in the American church today. People are making up all kinds of new rules about which parts of the gospel apply to us today and which parts do not. And if you don't follow their new take on the gospel, as far as they're concerned, you are disqualified from the true church because you're nothing more than a narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, arrogant simpleton who will wither away into the wrong side of history, forgotten and irrelevant. Okay, so you're telling me after 16 centuries of biblical orthodoxy guiding the church of Jesus Christ, we've now decided it's time for our doctrine and theology to change based on the social and political sensibilities of popular culture in the West. 
This is the reality, guys, that we're facing in the American church today, and it's going to continue to spread as long as our culture continues down the path it's currently on, because much of the church has its roots firmly embedded in pop culture rather than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about Paul's approach to this very problem in Colossae is that rather than focusing on tearing down the faith of the opposition and their false teaching, he doesn't do that at all. He focuses on building up the faith of the Christians by teaching them to sink their roots even deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you're rooted in Christ, no one can disqualify you. Right? When Paul uses the word disqualify, he uses the ancient Greek word katabrabuo. It means to award the price against or, or to beguile of reward. It was used to refer um, to the negative verdict of an umpire in an athletic event. So like when an athlete is tossed out of a game today by a referee or an umpire, that athlete is disqualified, right? So these false teachers in Colossae were trying to disqualify the Christians there who would not follow this new teaching or these new ideas or new practices from being a part of the church. They were trying to run them out of the church. And I want to address this today as it relates to the church, not only in the realm of false teaching and false teachers, because we've talked about that a lot now, but also in the sense that People leave the church today. They leave the faith. They leave the family of God because they allow others to disqualify them, not only for doctrinal reasons, but for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with doctrine or theology or anything of any real importance at all. Right? So let me just remind you that everything Paul was confronting in this letter Everything that was happening to the Colossians in the church was happening to them by other Colossians in the church. And although there may be exceptions to that today, honestly, I can't think of one because every time someone I've known has left the church, it was always because of someone else in the church. Honestly, I've dealt with this for the last 23 years. People who leave the church and it's always because of something that someone else in the church said or did to them. And again, sometimes that has nothing to do with false religion. But very often it does have to do with false expectations, which is almost as bad. Because people will allow someone else in the church to disqualify them from the family of God because they weren't meeting some expectation of that other person in the church. It's complete nonsense. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, no one can qualify you from the, disqualify you from the family of God unless you allow them to. Okay, look, we're all on this journey together. But we're not all in the same place in this journey. So don't expect everyone else to be where you are. Allow people in the church, allow them room to grow into the men and women that God wants them to be. And listen, on the other side, if someone says something to you that hurts your feelings or offends you, by all means, it is appropriate to confront that person with love and gentleness and respect. But for the sake of your own walk with Christ, please don't allow that comment or that offense to disqualify you from the church. Don't allow your roots in the family of God to be that shallow. Because your walk with Christ as a part of his body is infinitely deeper than anyone else's expectations of you. Amen. 
So listen, don't let insensitive people disqualify you. Treat it for what it is. Fertilizer. It may really stink. But if you allow it to, it will actually help your roots grow deeper into Christ and anchor you that much more as a member of His family. Okay? When you're spiritually healthy, there is nothing in this world that can stop you from producing good spiritual fruit in your life. No one can take you captive. No one can judge you or disqualify you spiritually. But that will require you to feed your spirit. It's the part of you that no one sees, the roots of your life that reach into Christ because that is the part of you that connects with God. And just like a tree, you need to feed your roots. And listen, if you're not sure about that, then just take a good, long, sometimes painfully honest look at what is coming out of your life and ask yourself, what can I point to right now in my life that is producing the spiritual fruit that Paul talks about in my own life and in the lives of others, right? Who is being spiritually nourished right now because of what is coming out of my life right now? Because if you can't point to anything, if you cannot identify spiritual fruit in your life that is feeding you or those around you, then your roots might be starving and weak and shallow which not only robs those around you who need to be fed by you, by the way, but it robs you of your own spiritual stability and health when your roots don't go down deep enough into Him. And believe me, that will show up in your life at some point or another, soon enough, if it hasn't already, okay? If you want to be strong in Christ, then you have to prune the outside of your life and feed the inside. Walk out your life constantly feeding those spiritual roots and not only will you be spiritually strong and stable and healthy, even in the most difficult times of your life, but those around you will be nourished and built up in the faith by the good fruit that is being produced in a life that is firmly and deeply rooted in Christ. Let's pray.